Hey there, thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network. We are live and nationwide from Washington, D.C. I'm Burke Allen. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to our show sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. So if you're a meeting planner or you're a speaker and your whole world has been thrown upside down by COVID-19, log on to SpeakerMatch.com to find out how you can get together for virtual presentations or in-person keynotes in 2021 when things ramp back up. That's SpeakerMatch.com. And speaking of speakers, our guest today is a speaker with a very different niche, if you will. He spent uh, over 10 years as the lead hostage negotiator for the FBI and uh, if you've seen on, on Netflix recently, one of the most watched shows there, Waco, uh, you'll see him featured as one of the characters. Michael Shannon plays him in the movie. Gary Nessner is our guest today. He's also the author of the bestseller Stalling for Time. And they used that book as part of the source material for the Waco miniseries on Netflix. Gary, thanks for being a part of the program. And thanks for uh, taking some time out to talk with us today. My pleasure to be with you. So I want to rewind to a young Gary who's a kid growing up in, in Florida. And I read a, an interview you did several years ago that said that you first got interested in joining the FBI when, as a kid, you saw J. Edgar Hoover on the Mickey Mouse Club. Is that true? Yeah, it's really true. Uh, you know, um, I think in my book I say I was 12 years old and I got that all wrong because uh, I gave a speech a few years ago, and as a gift from the uh, organization that uh, hired me to speak, they gave me a, a copy of the videotape of that show. And uh, as it turns out, I was eight years old. And uh, and uh, what had happened is that you know the Mickey Mouse show back then was sort of a afternoon kids variety show, and uh, the young host went to Washington D.C. and toured the FBI building and interviewed Jagger Hoover and went to the farms range. And, you know, for a young eight-year-old, I just thought that was the neatest thing in the world and, and sort of set my sights for becoming an FBI agent. And uh, lo and behold, quite some years later, it happened. Most kids of that era were watching the Mickey Mouse Club for Annette Funicello, and you're watching for Hoover. Yep. You want to be <laughs> you want to be a G-man, but you actually did it. Were you, uh, as a kid in school, were you particularly studious? I mean, what was it? Uh, from the cut of your jib that made you think you could do this? You know, that's a very good question. I mean, I I, I was most in all respect an average kid, you know, and uh, I wasn't, uh, you know, a top performer academically, but I was in the middle of the road somewhere, and same with athletics and extracurricular activities. But, you know, it was just, uh, I, I have one of a dear friend that wanted to be a doctor at that age, and he became a doctor, and I have another friend that wanted to be a pilot. He became a pilot. So I don't know if it was in the water that we drank or whatever, but, um, you know, it just, it was a job that appealed to me as being prestigious and challenging and fascinating. And I just never really wanted a, a more routine kind of job, uh, working in the bank or whatever. And, um, you know, so it just, it, it came true for me and it certainly wasn't disappointing. I had 30 years in the FBI and uh, a lot of great experiences. Gary Nestor is our guest today. We're talking about his time in the FBI, his book, Stalling for Time, and you can visit him online at GaryNestor.com. Um, you went to college to do what? What was your degree in in college, or what, what did you study in college? Yeah, well, I, um, I majored in sociology and history, but I, I came out with a teacher certificate because uh, those days, as well as today, you, you couldn't become an FBI agent right out of college. You had to have a couple of years' work experience, and uh, 
so my plan was to be a school teacher for a few years and then uh, apply to be in the FBI. And as it turned out, the, the school job I had lined up uh, didn't didn't come to pass. And so I went ahead and joined the FBI as what they call a clerk or a support employee. Did that for a few years to gain my work experience before I got a slot to agent's training school. So, yeah, it all worked out serendipitously. You came of age, in, as you said, in the 1950s. You were a little kid watching the Mickey Mouse Club. So you actually got out of school in the 60s. What year did you graduate? I graduated from high school in 68 and uh, you know, started college that, that fall. And I was still 17 years old and because uh, I have a late fall birthday. And, uh, yeah, it was a, certainly a different time. And uh, it seems like so long ago now. But uh, I was raised, had a great family and raised in a great place in northeast Florida, Atlantic Beach, and, you know, nothing but, but fond memories of, of those experiences. You were in a small town, and you were not in a big city then in 1968. But, uh, I mean, you no. were certainly right in the middle of an awful lot of turmoil and unrest, not – uh, a whole lot different than what has happened in this country this summer with with uh, the protest and, and you know, the violence in the big cities. And, of course, you were also dealing with Vietnam back then. How is it that you managed to navigate all that? And, and when you look back on it, what are your memories of that really tumultuous time in, in American's history? You know, that, that's a pretty broad question. I mean, there were tumultuous times. I mean, Robert Kennedy was killed that year, Martin Luther King, as you mentioned, the Vietnam War. Um, you know, I think uh, the drug culture was coming of age, um, a lot of social rebellion, anti-war movement, a lot of things that, that called into question the way things have been done, you know, since World War II. And, uh, you know, society had a, a fair a, a bit of turmoil and of course, I, I don't know if it was any, any worse than what we're seeing today with all that's going on. But uh, you know, it certainly uh, it certainly was an interesting time uh, to be brought up. And in the South, where I was raised, I mean, we were a segregated society. I think only my senior high school, uh, 67, 68 academic year, did we finally get integrated in the high school I went to. So, you know, things were still quite different back then than they are today. And I guess, you know, what I'm wondering is that you look back on it and you were uh, you were you're geared up to be on the straight and narrow. I mean, you think about uh, an FBI agent, you know, I, I almost visualize, you know, thousands of young Jack Webbs, you know, back then uh, from Dragnet, you know, guys that look like that and wore the skinny ties and the short haircuts and, and applying to be yeah. G-men. And that's that is not what we generally think of as a young man coming of age in the late 60s. So where did you fall in on all that? No, I was pretty square back then, I would imagine. Not, not, not terribly different from most of my friends and colleagues. I mean, you know, our hell-raising was very moderate compared to, you know, some of the mischief people might get involved in today. But, you know, um, it, it seems like when I was in high school, I didn't know anybody that did drugs. And then a year or two later in college, it seemed pervasive, you know, so things transition very quickly, but, uh, no, I was always kind of a straight shooter kind of guy. And, you know, my, my parents were, uh, you know, you can go to college as long as you make good grades. And if you don't money stops and that's you go. So, you know, I kind of had my, my, uh, my working orders going there. And, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to make a difference. You know, I, I felt as though anybody can live a boring, uh, life. I wanted to do something that I thought would be fun and interesting and challenging and, and could make a difference, you know, whether it was in the area of civil rights or 
political corruption, organized crime. And later I spent a lot of time in my career doing terrorism. So all those things were just fascinating opportunities to, to work. And you know, I almost felt like I never had, a, had to work in my life. I always had a job I enjoyed so much. Did you register for the draft and, and were you nervously watching to see if your number would come up? Yeah, I mean, we all were back then. And um, and, and sure enough, yeah, I, I got a very high number in the draft. And, uh, you know, at that time, um, that, that was a good thing because I, I think there was sort of a general feeling then that the, the Vietnam War was it sort of evolved into uh, a monumental waste of human life and resources and was in many respects non-winnable. So that's why so many young people were turning against it. I was pretty patriotic and true blue and loyal back then, but, but even I realized that, gee, this seems to be a, a, an awful waste of time, and sadly so many lost their lives in that effort. So when you came out of college, you had this teaching certificate. Were you ever in a classroom teaching uh, public schools in Florida? Just for a short period of time. I talked just very briefly and uh, then got that job in the FBI referenced earlier and just started my career a little earlier than I thought. And, uh, yeah, and uh, got sent to Washington and ended up meeting my my wife-to-be up there, who was a stenographer with the FBI, and then we transferred back to Florida, and then my first office was South Carolina, and then I spent the bulk of my FBI career in the, in the Washington, D.C. area. You can't go right into the FBI, I would imagine, as as a field agent. You probably have to start somewhere low, you know. And in lots of companies, you start off as an intern or you work in the mailroom. What do you do when your first job at the FBI? You finally land this job. It's something you've dreamed about for years. What is the first menial task you have to do with the Bureau? Well, people get in different pathways. I mean, the FBI used to hire, they still do to some extent, but the numbers aren't great, lawyers and accountants. And, uh, you know, former military officers, police officers, and so forth and so on. Um, so so I didn't come from the outside and go right to agent school. I Again, as I mentioned, I worked for a few years in the FBI as a support employee, you know, and um, working, sort of supporting a squad of agents that were doing counterintelligence. So what does that and mean? I mean when when you're, you say you're a support agent, what are you doing on a daily basis? No, you're not. You're, a support employee is not a, you know, a sworn, authorized, gun-carrying person that's works outside the office and, you know, makes arrests and does investigations. You're doing uh, the other sort of support work that needs to be done, you know, filing, writing reports, and do, doing the various things uh, that need to be done. I mean, for a while I was a radio dis- dispatcher for the FBI. So, you know, I held a, a variety of different jobs. But again, eventually once you get to agents training, all agent goes agents go through that training and then you, um, you know, randomly signed uh, to a city and, and uh, put on a squad that handles one of the many different violations that the FBI investigates. And that's where you get most of your experiences on the job and learning from senior agents how to do what it is that we do. And you said you wound up uh, here in the Washington, D.C. metro. Is this where you spent the bulk of your career, or did you get moved around quite a bit? It was. Okay. Yeah. I mean, again, I I had three assignments elsewhere before then, but it it ended up being that we we spent uh, a bulk of the career, my career, um, in, in the Washington area and, uh, 24 years of my 30 year career, something like that, 25 years. Darren uh, Esther is our guest. The book is stalling for time. And, and we're talking about his career in the FBI. And, and you of course didn't start off 
as a, a negotiator, was that even a discipline at the time? Because again, if, if I think about you know the Elliot Ness FBI, there was not a whole lot of negotiating. There was you know negotiations uh, seemed to be secondary to tough guy antics. So it's almost as if I'm talking to a guy that was swimming upstream. Well, just shortly after I joined the FBI, and completely unbeknownst to me, the New York City Police Department was laying out the foundations of what would later become hostage negotiations. And the FBI recognized it as a, as a very innovative and uh, appropriate uh, tool for law enforcement to have. And so the FBI, you know, I like to say borrowed, but we stole it from NYPD and began to teach it around the country and overseas and refined it and you know, did research to back up the premises of how we communicate with people in crisis and how we de-escalate situations and convince people to cooperate and not hurt somebody else. And, you know, through the years it evolved and expanded and, you know, eventually became, uh, you know, has become one of the most effective tools in the history of law enforcement. Uh, and most of the time, the cases that are worked are resolved without fanfare. So a lot of times the public isn't even aware of, but, but it, it has made a big difference. And, you know, I, I did that as a part-time function um, for many years in the FBI while I was assigned uh, working overseas hijacking cases. And then eventually uh, I was made a, the chief negotiator and, uh, you know, I spent 23 years of my 30 years as a full-time negotiator and 10 as the chief negotiator. So, um, yeah, things just happen sort of more by circumstance than, than planning. Stalling for Time tells the story of, of several of those more high-profile hostage negotiations. And one of the ones that, that you touch on in the book is uh, prison negotiations. And yeah. I always think about uh, these times because I, you know, I've been inside the prison system a little bit where you have such a, a small, relatively small number of guards. And it doesn't take a whole lot for the inmates under the right circumstances to overpower them, and I can't imagine what it must be like for you to sort of have to parachute into that situation where people who, you know, inmates who are already uh, living under extreme duress are suddenly, you know, in the middle of their worst day ever. And, and I would imagine that's pretty much the case for everyone you negotiate with at, at that level. You're talking to somebody when they're having their worst day of their life. No, that's absolutely right, and you know, typically, not always, but almost uh, a good majority of the time, uh, there's a very high level of emotion involved. So you mentioned the prison riot, you know, something is typically sparked, you know, unrest in the facility and there's been a you know, gang dispute or a fight or something. And, um, you know, the inmates uh, have various factions and they take hostages and, you know, they're very, uh, they feel empowered and very demanding and, and um, so, you know, it, it requires some skill to try to uh, restore calm and peace and then, uh, you know, convince these people that they're really not going to get everything that they want. They're not going to be able to fly on a plane to Europe and get away. I mean, and eventually they have to, uh, they're left with a, two choices, really, to cooperate or potentially be seriously injured or killed if they resist. But we try to do it without endangering anyone's lives, and uh, you know, we're typically successful. You know, you mentioned the the demand to uh, to take an airplane and fly away, and and as a kid, I, you know, I grew up in the '70s, and and there was a, a whole run of mm-hmm. airplane 
uh, hijackings that happened then, and right. those seem to have gone away. Were you involved in uh, any of those? Well, most of those, you know, the ones you're referring to in the 70s, a lot of those went to Cuba. Um, I, I worked some Middle East hijackings later on. Those were more in the, the 80s. But, um, you yeah, know, those are, are particularly challenging cases. And, um, you know, I've worked hijacking, prison riots, right-wing militia standoffs, uh, embassy sieges overseas. I uh, uh, had an opportunity to, you know, negotiate in a lot of different settings, uh, with a lot of different challenges. And uh, through that, you know, we've, we've learned a lot, a lot along the way and kind of translated that into, you know, uh, generalized principles about, uh, avoiding confrontation and, and gaining cooperation from people in a, in a variety of different settings. So many people know about you most recently because Netflix has, has begun airing this uh, this Waco miniseries that actually came out a couple of years ago on, on Spike TV, or I guess it's called Paramount now. Um, Michael Shannon played you in, in the film, and they used your book as one of the pieces of source material for it. In the beginning of that movie, uh, that miniseries rather, uh, Michael Shannon, who's playing you, shows up at, at Ruby Ridge. Were you involved in Ruby Ridge, or was this part of the, the Hollywood retelling of the story? It was, in that instance, uh, a bit of Hollywood, because uh, the real Ruby Ridge happened in the fall of 92, and I was out of the country at the time. And um, I was scheduled to go out there if it if it continued, but my partner was out there. But what the TV folks wanted to do is, um, you know, they knew in the last five of the six episodes, Michael Shannon would be playing a very significant role playing me at Waco, but they needed to get him in the first episode. So uh, basically they had him at Ruby Ridge doing what in reality my partner did. Um, so that the basic premise of what happened is accurately told, but I wasn't the one doing it. And I wasn't particularly happy about that, but it's just the way they had to do it. And, you know, what you find out is when you sell your book rights, uh, you can influence, but you don't control what they do with it. I have uh, another friend whose book, uh, uh, Rocket Boys, was made into the movie October Sky, and he likes to say that Hollywood has their ways and they're not our <laughs> own. Um, Gary Nestner, I guess, today, his book, Stalling for Time, part of the source material for Waco, which is a fantastic miniseries that's available now on Netflix about uh, the, the Branch Davidians and David Koresh and and you found yourself in Waco, Texas, negotiating with, with Koresh and, and the Branch Davidians. And, and I'm sure you've talked about this an awful lot, and you've got 25-plus years to, to reflect on it. What I found fascinating was that this miniseries was brought to my attention by my 15-year-old son, who you know was not even alive when this happened. So for him, it's ancient history. For you, you lived it. Are there lots of people that are coming to you now saying, gosh, I had no idea that happened, or so this happened, and, and, and you know, tell me about your recollections of it, uh, because they weren't even around then? Are you hearing some of those young folks that, that want to get your first-hand yeah. account? Yeah, it's actually been quite interesting. I mean, as you mentioned, it premiered two years ago on the Paramount Network. It was their first program after they rebranded from Spike, and it, and it got a fair amount of attention because it had some pretty high powerful actors in there and it was done pretty well, but only in the last two months when Netflix, um, released it. I mean, the, the interest has gone crazy. I, I can't even keep track of how many podcasts I've done and how many interviews and how many, uh, academic, uh, entities and so forth have reached out. And 
in 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 respect, you're right. Uh, some are just discovering this incident, and one of the problems is while I support the show and was involved in it, you know, there's some dramatization there as well. So, you know, I try to tell people if you're really interested in what happened, you know, read a lot more about it because there's some aspects of it that you know maybe weren't fully portrayed in the movie. I think they portrayed David Crush. My biggest uh, criticism is they portrayed him far too sympathetically. He, he was in real life a pretty sinister, dark, and manipulative guy. And uh, th- that didn't come through as well because they've had that wonderful actor Taylor Kitsch playing him. And Taylor's such a very nice guy in real life that uh, that sort of came through uh, in, in his performance because I think they wanted to show how David Koresh was able to charm others to become his followers. And, and I think they did that well. They just didn't show the darker part uh, sufficiently for my, for, for my taste. You know, there were some other questions, uh, who shot first between the ATF and the Davidians and they made it look like ATF did. And yet I think that's a highly questionable conclusion. And at the end, they sort of infer that the FBI started the fire and that's certainly been proven not to have been the case. So there's a few things like that, but overall, I think the viewer who watches that six part miniseries will get a pretty accurate reflection of the the human drama involved. And I'm very uh, open about the depiction of the conflict within the FBI, which is, you know, very real and very fairly depicted. We had uh, very competing uh, approaches within the FBI as how to deal with this, and, and that was a factor in the outcome. And you actually were not there at the very end. You were instrumental in getting no. lots of the Branch Davidians out, but you were were actually relieved of, of your position and, and sent back to Washington. Is that right? Yeah, we, uh, it was a 51-day siege. I was there for the first half, exactly 26 days. And in that time, we got 35 people out, including 21 children, through the negotiation process. Now, there were leaders in the FBI that wanted to take a more aggressive approach. They felt that it was taking too long. It was making the FBI look weak. It was costing over a million dollars a day back in 1993 dollars, which is pretty serious. Um, and, and it was very frustrating. There was a lot of pressure to resolve the situation. So they, they wanted to take a more aggressive approach, thinking they could force the Davidians out. And so they brought in somebody else to run the team and no one else came out. And, uh, as you know, it, you know, uh, the second half was, was pretty ineffective and they, uh, you know, ended up uh, with the tear gas and, and the tragic outcome that followed. But, uh, I'm very proud of my negotiation team and what we accomplished, but I'm also, you know, as everyone shocked by, by the terrible tragedy unfolded. You talked about, uh, David Koresh being a very sinister guy and, and maybe not being portrayed necessarily like that in this miniseries. Did you have uh, one-on-one phone conversations with him, or, or where do you pull that, that sinister persona from? Yeah, I did. I mean, when, I, when I, I flew out there that night and got there before the rest of my negotiation team, and uh, there had already been conversations going on with Koresh, and the people that were doing that were pretty exhausted from a full day's activity, you know, the day of the shootout. So, um, you know, I took over speaking directly with Koresh, which is, Normally not my job as the team leader. I'm normally developing the strategy and leading the team and so forth and so on. So, but I did speak with him for 10 or so hours uh, the first evening there. And then uh, once my team got there, I, I was, of course, listening to every call and helping guide the strategy. But I wasn't 
the one on the phone, although that's how it's depicted in the TV show. Again, that's a little dramatic license from Hollywood. But, uh, yeah, he was uh, an interesting character. There were times where he was easy to talk to and down to earth. And there was lots of times where he was very self-serving, very narcissistic, very uh, combative, uh, very challenging. So he, he was a he was a tough character for sure. I uh, I read an article about the the making of the film, and I know you were on set some, and and so was one of the Davidians that that got out. Uh, I think his last name was Thibodeau, and they used his book as also part of the mm-hmm. source material. You had not met him prior to the filming of this and, and you guys both showing up on set. What was that interaction like? Were you nervous to meet this guy? Was there trepidation on both sides? Did, did you come together because of this common bond that you shared? Tell me about what that was like. Yeah. I mean, I had not met David, hadn't met any of the Davidians. Well, that's not true. I had met, um, uh, two of them at a Baylor conference at the 20th year anniversary of Waco. That was very fleeting, uh, chat with with two of the survivors but uh yeah they had uh the they the tv producers had uh, a relationship with thibodeau for a year before they met me and they used his book as sort of getting the uh inside looking outside perspective and they used my book as the outside looking inside so i, I thought that was a novel way to go about putting the miniseries together to to look at it from the, the two positions but um, so David and I met on set, and we got along well. And uh, I think uh, some people were very curious to how that would go, but we were very civil and uh, polite. We there are some areas we disagree on, but I have a lot of respect for David, and I think he does for me. And um, he called me just a couple of weeks ago on something, and uh, yeah, I was I was glad to hear from him. And uh, you know, we we weren't hanging out much on the set, but we we did have lunch together a few times, and I met his mother when she came out to the scene and uh, it was interesting it must be i'm not even sure what the right word is surreal to stand on the set of a movie and see someone portraying you doing things that you did um you know many years ago can you put that into words for me what that that's like to watch that whole thing unfold well, I think you used the, the good words. It is quite surreal. I mean, I remember the first, um, uh, I think they were filming a Ruby Ridge scene when I first got there, and, uh, and you know, Michael Shannon's playing me, and he walks up to somebody uh, who, who enters into the scene, and he, and he says, hi, I'm Gary Nestor. And I'm saying to myself, no, no, you're not. I'm over here. You know, who, <laughs> who, who are you? But, you know, he played me so well. He wasn't trying to, I mean, Taylor Kitsch was trying to imitate in many respects, David Koresh. Mike Shannon was not trying to imitate me, but he captured my approach, my demeanor, um, you know, the dialogue. And we had only had one discussion uh, before the filming, and that was over the phone. And so I was absolutely shocked to see how well he had me pegged and, and uh, in, in terms of intent, you know. And it was really... Quite an interesting thing. I, I must say, I've done a lot of interesting things in my life, but being on that film set was uh, a real eye-opening to see how they do that. It's quite a complex operation to put a film like that. There's like 200 people on the set. You know, it's a, it's quite a, a lot of moving parts. That's a, it is, a, in all aspects, a big production when you have a big movie production like that. Um, yeah. So, uh, Gary, when when the FBI 
sees something like that, like this this movie Waco, and and I know you're long retired, and uh, you know you're you're not uh, answerable to those guys, you're not accountable to them, but that must just make them crazy because they're not, frankly, portrayed in the best light. And uh, and this has been a tough year for that sort of thing. You know, there was the, the Clint Eastwood movie yeah. about the Atlantic bomb, uh, Atlanta bombings and, and then Waco and, uh, you know, the, the Bureau, which once had this pretty pristine reputation, has is, is seen better days in terms of its reputation management. Do you hear from current or former FBI agents that say, hey, man, cut it out or did they come after you after you wrote the book what what is the demeanor that you pick up on from the bureau yeah i mean you'd be surprised to hear i mean i did hear some comments mostly from uh you know former negotiator colleagues and those were all positive i i never had anybody either in email or any other form criticize me directly so you know i mean i i know there's some people out there i know you know, through, through, through other friends or people that aren't happy with the portrayal, but, you know, I, I would stand by, um, you know, I would fully stand by, uh, the FBI portrayal came from my book and, and, and that's done pretty accurately. And, you know, my view has always been the reason I wrote the book, uh, not just solely because of Waco, but Waco was certainly a big factor in it. The reason I wrote the book and the reason I cooperated in this film project is because we are, we in the FBI are public servants. And it is incumbent upon us to uh, be as professional as we can. When we make mistakes, we have to live up to them. We have to uh, determine what it is we did well so we can do it again. And then we have to identify where we came up short, what mistakes we made, and we need to correct them. That's what I think the public expects from us, and that's what's important for us to do. And uh, merely saying that, oh, it was all perfect and nothing we did contributed to the outcome – I think is naive. I have always blamed David Koresh ultimately for what happened out there. He had the power day in and day out to lead his people out peacefully. We encouraged him to do so, and he, and he chose not to. However, saying that does not then mean that the FBI did not make mistakes that, that contributed to the problem. So I think you have to owe up to that stuff, and um, that's how I always lived my career, and you know that's how I think people need to be. Hindsight being twenty twenty, of course, if you would have still been there, would you have gotten those people out? Well, uh, I think it's fair to say, and I do believe this is not all my fault, that if the, uh, the tactical and, and on-scene command had uh, followed our advice rather than uh, taking actions that uh, unintentionally undercut the negotiation process, I, I believe we could have gotten everybody out. Now, you, there's colleagues that would strongly disagree and say that it was going to end the way it did no matter what. And I think that's a bit self-serving. I think it sort of eases them of a sense of responsibility. But um, again, I think um, I think we could have we didn't put our best foot forward uh, as an organization. And I think, uh, in fact, uh, um, the you know at the end of the incident, after the incident, the on-scene commander and the tactical commander were encouraged to retire, and they did, and, and I ended up getting a promotion out of it. So it was a realization that the FBI about defended itself in the public realm. Internally, it realized that some things went on that were not in keeping with how we have done them in the past. So Waco was more a departure from our tried and true methodology than it was not knowing how to do it. So, you know, it, 
it empowered the negotiation program. They helped me uh, expand the unit and get a promotion and, and allow negotiations to become a more uh, influential part of the way we manage crises. So it was somewhat portrayed in the in the miniseries that prior to Waco, there were sort of these two competing sides within the FBI. There were the the gung ho, we're going to roll in there, and and we're the FBI. So by damn, we're going to get things done the way we want to get things done, as opposed to Michael Shannon's character, you know, portraying you. Uh, I don't want to say we're, we're seen as sort of pacifist, but you were certainly not those those hard charging FBI agents. Is that a fair portrayal? Was there a large faction you think in the bureau that was somewhat dismissive of people that were negotiators? Well, it's an expect. There certainly were those in the FBI, and this also reflects what we see today um, in a lot of law enforcement agencies. There has always been a, a yin and yang with the tactical side and the negotiation side. There is an element in law enforcement, both at the state, local, and, and, and federal levels, that you know feels the need to take a very tough, uh, uncompromising position with criminals, and we go in there and we tell them what to do, and if they resist, we use our force and we make them do what we want to do. And then the school of thought that I represented then and, and continue to is that, wait a minute, um, we're trying to resolve this, first and foremost, so no cops get hurt, you know. Anytime we get somebody surrounded, we don't have to send a police officer or a SWAT guy or an FBI agent into a dangerous situation facing somebody that's got weapons then we've succeeded in keeping them from harm's way and they go home to their families. You know, we start saying in negotiations, don't get even, get your way. You know, so what works best for us is is a peaceful surrender. And, um, you know, we say that philosophically, but we don't always, have not always practiced that. I mean, philosophically, all law enforcement will tell you they uh, they use force only when they're left with no recourse. And that's sort of the legal benchmark that has to be passed. You know, we don't shoot people because we want to. We use deadly force only to protect our lives or somebody else's. You know, and that applies more broadly to how we handle a crisis. We we should not uh, use force just because we can and we're able. We have to demonstrate in court of law and maybe a court of a public opinion that, you know, we gave this person every opportunity to do the right thing. Their actions, their behaviors led us to believe that our failure to act would have caused loss of life or death, so therefore we had to take action to try to prevent loss of life. That's that's sort of the hurdle we have to cross. And if we don't do that, um, we're subjecting ourselves to um, you know rightful criticism. Gary Nessner, our guest today, his book is Stalling for Time. It's part of the source material for Waco, the miniseries that is all over Netflix, one of the top ten most viewed uh, shows on Netflix as everybody's sort of sheltered in place after coronavirus, and uh, Michael Shannon uh, plays Gary on uh, in the film in, in Waco. Um, before we jump, I, I need to ask you, Gary, I was approached a couple of years ago by a firm here in Washington, D.C. that was made up of some former negotiators with uh, with the FBI and the Secret Service and some other law enforcement negotiators, and, and they work in negotiations now uh, in international business terms. But I would think there are certain tenets of what you learned in your time with the FBI and what you went on to teach other agents that you could apply in everyday life. For example, if you're trying to negotiate uh, a raise uh, at, at your job, are there are there certain sort of benchmarks that you take into every negotiation that you do, no matter what the stakes? Well, there, there are people, former uh, 
law enforcement negotiators are among those uh, that, you know, try to um, cross over and apply some of the skills uh, in, in the business world in the context of sales or HR relationships, whatever it might be. And I, I do, um, pre-COVID at least, I, I do a great deal of corporate speaking where I take the lessons learned from law enforcement negotiations and how they apply more broadly in life and work. And, you know, I can just tell you that basically the, the basic premise is that everything in life is about relationships, literally everything. And, um, you know, to create a positive relationship in which you can make a sales or, or uh, maintain a client relationship, it's all about being a good listener and understanding the needs and issues and concerns of, of whoever you're working with and demonstrating to them that you are thoughtful and you care and you, uh, uh, you know, and you're likable and genuine. And, you know, that's what not only uh, helps you gain business, but maintain it. Um, we always say in the business world, you know, you, you don't want to be a hunter and constantly looking for new business. You want to be a farmer. So sustain the relationship that you've created and keep uh, harvesting the business that, that that client brings back to you again and again and again. And you do that by, you know, being reliable and trustworthy and, you know, likable and all those things. And uh, people want to work with people they like and respect. And that's kind of the key to how all this works. When you sit down at the kitchen table with Mrs. Nesner and, and you're trying to negotiate out uh, something big or small, it could be as small as, you know, where, where you're going to have dinner tonight uh, or the new car purchase. Does she ever look at you and say, Gary, don't use that negotiation stuff on me. I know you. Yeah, less and less, but yes, she she has certainly done that in the past, and uh, less and, and less. And hence my normally telling people, you know, that hey, this is good stuff, but it doesn't work at home. And uh, you know, it's um, yeah, there, there's something else. Sometimes it's easier to uh, be be a good negotiator with someone you don't know well or a stranger because when when it's a family member, there's a lot of history there, you know, and most of it's good, but some of it's bad as well, and. It's just a different dynamic altogether. But, you know, I think many, many of us uh, in relationships and husbands, and I'm no different, you know, we can all work on our listening skills. Um, there is a human tendency to take for granted the the one we're with and the one we can rely on to look after us and us them. And uh, I think that's human nature to some extent. But, no, I mean, um, I always think of the uh, the great song by Harry Chapin, Cats in the Cradle, you know, and the the kid keeps wanting to do something with his dad and the dad says, I'm busy, but you know, we'll talk later. And then next thing you know, the kid's grown and the father wants time with him. And the kid says, sorry, dad, we'll do it later. You know, I'm too busy now. And, you know, and the guy realizes that he got back what he gave. And, uh, you know, there comes a time and I try to do that as a grandparent now with, with seven grandkids. I try to, when they want to talk about something or want to engage, I say, well, there's nothing else that's more important than that. I better just really focus on that. and. You know, I have the time now to do that, and I think we 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 can all uh, do ourselves a world of good by slowing things down and being better better listeners and and trying to understand the perspective of another. That's certainly true in our volatile political context these days. I love your standpoint on that. I I love your vision. As, as you look back on thirty years in the FBI, what are you most proud of? You know, I I guess I have to say. Um, it certainly is negotiations in the broad sense, but um, one of the things we did, I didn't invent this, but there, there's a set of skills 
used in the counseling community, you know, they come from the great guy, you know, the psychologist called Rogers, and they're called active listening skills. And when I got into negotiations, we were just sort of bargaining with people, you know, well, you got hostages, you want a hamburger, I'll give you a hamburger, but you're going to give me a hostage, you know, and it was sort of focused in that area alone. And, and you know, I got those uh, borrowed, stole, whatever you want to say, those uh, engaging active listening skills from the counseling community. And I introduced them and spread them throughout the country to our negotiation curriculum. And I think, I really have to assess that I think that probably has, a, has had a broader impact. When I was uh, teaching negotiations in the 80s and you would ask somebody about active listening skills or a group of people, they, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. And now you can't find a hostage negotiator in the country. There's thousands of them with different police departments that isn't uh, well-versed on, on that essential tool. So, you know, I, I take some measure of pride in help having, having introduced that and, and, uh, and, and spread that around the country. And I think that's probably resulted in an awful lot of lives being saved. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And, uh, you know, the less transactional any conversation is, any relationship the more beneficial it is. It can't be all transactional. Um, one, one last question. What, what when you look back at, at you know, all that, those years with the FBI, what do you think, Gary, people get wrong about the Bureau? Well, I, I, I think sometimes they, they view the FBI as being uh, very stiff and humorless, and TV often projects the FBI, which it's sometimes guilty of, but often projects the FBI as simply taking and not helping. And, you know, I, I think that's an unfair characterization because, you know, particularly earlier in my career, one of the main functions of the FBI was provide free training to the police to help them do better what they had to do. And the FBI was always very forthcoming. Most police officers back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, they got almost all their training through FBI instructors. So I think, you know, we were certainly givers in many respects. And FBI agents are like everybody else. We have senses of humor. (laughs) We're regular down-to-earth people. We're not all uh, stiff Dick Tracy types or, you know, Jack Webb. And uh, so that's probably the biggest misnomer. The other is is people think we listen to every phone call and know exactly what everybody's doing and have a file on everyone. It's just you stop to think about there's being less than 20,000 FBI agents. That's an awful lot of work for every agent. I really appreciate your time today. This has been an interesting conversation. Thanks for being here. My, my great pleasure. Gary Nessner is the author of Stalling for Time. He talks about his uh, decades-long career in negotiations with the FBI. It's also part of the source material for the miniseries Waco, available now on Netflix. From our studios in Washington, D.C., I'm Burke Allen. Thanks to our sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com. And thank you for listening to the Big Time Talker podcast. Now, go out there and make it a great day.